Hello everybody and welcome to Into the Prey, Breaching the Chaos of the Church. Welcome to City of Temples. This is part 51 and we're going to go through verses 12 to 19 today of that chapter. I'll read that in just a moment, but just some initial intro thoughts and recapping from last week. I want to just ask folk, again, if you've not listened to episode 50, this is the um, this is verses 12 to 19 today. If you've not listened to verses 1 to 11 of this chapter, that was the last episode, the last week, episode 50. Please go ahead and do that. It's really important, I think. Um, important to listen to that, so to listen to that in sequence. What kind of appearing and what kind of delivery, and again, that's why I'm saying listen to it because that might not mean a huge amount to you if you've not heard that, but what kind of appearing and what kind of delivery in 2022 is most appropriate and proportional? You know, thinking of our repentance, thinking of our coming into a recognition of our deconditioning, um, what kind of appearing, what kind of delivery um, is most appropriate and proportional? I'm coming to a term that I've used before in various different content over the last few years. And I want to use the title here because I think it's it's very appropriate and most fitting for what I'm describing, which is, and the, the title of this episode is Redeeming Radicalization. Okay, this is going to be part one of maybe two or three parts. It might even be the rest of this chapter, I don't know. But Redeeming Radicalization, Pushing People to the Root of the Resurrection. That will mean more to you all as you get to the end of this session with me today. But I want to I want us to think again about this repentance, keep producing fruit in keeping with repentance. What does it mean? What would it look like as we acknowledge before God that we are very deconditioned when it comes to the number one thing that we've been told by God to do, far too reliant on the church that we go to or the leadership team that we are under or whatever you know this is a personal thing do you remember what jesus said to john how that conversation sorry not john peter and jesus at the end of john 21 do you remember how that conversation with him went peter thinking that something else was going to happen to john because he had misinterpreted or assumed what jesus had said and actually jesus focus was just peter you follow me this is about you and me, Peter, and that's that's very much how we should think of the gospel, think of the pressing nature of gospel proclamation. It's, it's very much us before us and God in the sense that we'll be before him on our own, we'll be before him um, on the day of judgment. So how, how are we repenting and how are we carrying the gospel? How are we allowing him to show us, you know, in his leadership um, given that there's this kind of deconditioning generally, what what might that mean in terms of becoming fitter? What it, what might it mean in terms of growing stronger and more faithful? Um, if you think about it in this way, that the if you think if you if you accept that the gospel proclaiming resolving to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified is the primary reason that you're on the earth. Think about these new daily rhythms and routines, maybe, of delivering, sowing, planting. It might be gospel booklets. It might be, some. in some cases, I suppose it could be stood on the streets. It could be approaching people. It could be using 
um, digital media, social media differently. And it, uh, that's not a, that's never a replacement for face to face, of course. But, you know, there could be a raft of different things that that you have begun to start thinking about doing. It could be that you're going to neighbours, going to friends, saying things to relatives that you've perhaps perhaps historically not kind of lost face over. But even as you now begin to think of these daily ry- rhythms and routines, as you know, what what is feeling adequate? Like what, what feels inadequate to me, I'm being honest in saying this today, is that given the hour in which we live... You know, we're talking about things of eternal consequence anyway, but particularly because of the hour in which we live. Putting booklets through people's doors doesn't feel enough. You know, if it, it feel part of my decondition is is recognizing that this is such entry level. This is such this is so basic. Going to hundreds of homes near to where you live, taking ownership of your parish even though you're not a vicar, you know, you're a child of the king. You're a citizen of a kingdom that can't be shaken. It's so entry level, this, putting booklets through doors. So, In, in one sense, so what? If you remember back in chapter 7 where Paul gives those verses, let's run about 29, verse 29, verse 30, verse 31, you know, Paul gives those very um, gripping realities in terms of the the point in history that they were in at that point AD 55 remember this is the early 50s after death that this this letter to the Corinthians was written so if that was the emphasis there remember the the picture of a a, um, a sail being unfurled on a ship you know as a representative of a kind of figure of the end of the age and how close we are in relative terms and so on if that was the case then Paul's saying in those radical ways that are difficult to understand fully what he means. You know, if you're married, stop living as though you're married. And um, if, you re- if you're rejoicing, stop rejoicing. And if you, you know, th- all of this kind of la- radical shifting of mentality. If that was the case then in AD 55, how much, how much more should we feel that in AD 2022, if you like? So, so this weekly delivering and daily delivering of gospel booklets seems to me increasingly as I think about it as an inappropriate delivery if this is our only form of delivering. So I don't want to encourage you us to be doing one thing one week and then the next week saying it's inappropriate because it's not enough. And what I'm saying is if that's the only form of delivery, if that's all we do, you know, in that sense, how different is it to the Jehovah's Witnesses? I know the gospel is is not the same. The, God, the you know Putting the true gospel through people's doors is, of course, infinitely different to putting false gospels through people's doors. But it's the mentality that I'm going after here. And I think that's really what the Holy Spirit is, is wanting to redeem in us, redeem in his people, his bride, redeeming radicalization, pushing people to the root of the resurrection. And I want to say a bit more about that in a minute because how, how much is pushing people to the root of, of the resurrection well if people read the booklet then great but people have their ingrained entrenched mentalities that I'm going to come to in just a moment um, so I, I want us to I want us to think more radically basically that's what I'm saying Pryor says if God's grace does not produce such energetic single-mindedness 
there is something seriously lacking in our faith. Faith is kindled by the preaching of the gospel. That's what we said last week, that the, the remind, being reminded of the gospel, a daily reminding and so on, integrally involves a delivering of the gospel. And of course, Paul said, I'm giving to you what I have myself received. We heard that last week. And this is what he's saying again here. Um, we'll come to the text in just a minute. Um, faith is kindled by the preaching of the gospel. So if we don't have this energetic single-mindedness, and that, and again, energetic doesn't mean you have to be 20, 30, 40 to have energy. I'm talking about spiritual energy. That such energetic spiritual single-mindedness. If we don't have that, there's something wrong and preaching kindles faith for that to be a reality. And that's my prayer as I go through this now for myself, for yourselves. Um, this isn't about individual personality. You know, it's, it's a cop-out to say some people are, are better with this kind of thing than others. That may be true, it may not be. But the point is, it's, this is about the indwelling spirit of God. It's about each and every one of us being a temple of the Holy Spirit in this city of temples. So I want to talk, I want us to think about redeeming radicalization today. You know, you think about the counterfeit forms of delivering through through demonic forms of spiritual boldness. I'm, I, what I'm after here is spiritual boldness in, in myself. I'm, I'm essentially sharing here what, what I'm praying for myself spiritual boldness now we see spiritual forms of that counterfeit demonic forms of that think of the think of the horrendous um de- decap- murder and decapitation beheading of lee rigby a soldier in woolwich in 2013 i remember vividly i'm sure you do when that happened or the manchester arena bombing in 2017 you know interestingly both on exactly the same day i don't know enough about islam to understand that but both of those were those atrocities occurred on may the 22nd of 2013 and 2017 respectfully um what's going on there is is a demonic form of spiritual boldness um so redeeming redeeming radicalization from that contorted evil um, twisting of what the word means. In fact, it's a word that's supposed to characterize each and every one of us, pushing people to the root of the resurrection. That's what I want to, uh, what what I want us to think about. What I want us to do. The word radicalization is it's been hijacked. That's what I'm saying by these Islamic forms of terrorism. Not only, but primarily. You know, you can see white supremacism and other forms of hatred. In one sense hijacking the word radicalization. But I think if you think of radicalization, often it's synonymous with um, the, the process of radicalization that goes on with some um, Muslim guys in prisons or whatever. You know, it's it's very closely related to that. It's a hateful word. People And people are suspicious of it. It's negative. Um, and I think it's a word that's kept for normally relating therefore to counterfeit spirituality rather than true spirituality a, f- a phrase for false religion rather than true religion but but let's redeem it let's we this this is my prayer is that the church being prepared for the return of Jesus is essentially a redeeming of radicalization what happened to paul when he was converted in acts 9 well he was radicalized what happened with with philip well, he was radicalized himself first, but then with the Ethiopian and the baptism and the the immediate 
the immediacy of that, that was he was radicalized. What happened to Jesus' disciples when he called them? They were radicalized. So this word radicalized should be on the passport of every Christian. And I think instead we're generally shown up by Muslims and false religions and false spiritualities. So our text for today is verses uh, 12 to 19 of where we left off last time. Let me read it. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? That was our, our, in a sense, a linchpin from last week, the, the shocking reality that the Corinthians were falling hook, line and sinker for these Greek philosophies that there was no resurrection. And then he goes on to dismantle that verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So make no mistake, this, this matter of the resurrection of Jesus is the linchpin for everything. The reality in history. Paul what Paul is doing here, and this is this is why I'm subtitling this session today, pushing people to the root of the resurrection, redeeming radicalization, pushing people to the root of the resurrection. Prior says it's important with Paul, as we just consider those few verses, it's important with Paul, evidently, to push people to see the logic of their beliefs whether those beliefs are orthodox or heretical. Many Christians have never applied their faith either to their ordinary thinking or to their daily behaviour. Likewise, those who deviate from biblical truth must face up to the implications of what they assert and deny. This is what I'm saying about the, the, the kind of basic, the most elementary aspect of what we should all be doing, the bare minimum. In other words, the bare minimum is to put something prophetically sharp through the doors of people increasingly. That's the bare minimum. What, I, what, what Paul is doing here is he's doing more than that, and this is what Pryor is saying. He's, it's important for Paul to push people to see the logic of their beliefs, and that's what he does here in these, in these few verses. I'm not going to get bogged down in this today for, for time, but let's look at verse 13 because this is really where the, the rhetoric and the the ingenuity of Paul starts, but if there is, verse 13, but if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And then he goes on through the through the following verses to essentially talk about hypothetical um, consequences or implications of that claim of the, of the Corinthians, of some of the Christians being true. Um, but he does this in, in an ingenious way, and it's important to understand this as, as a part of, I think, our asking ourselves, what might it mean for us to be prepared to engage more forcefully, more radically with people in our orbits so as to push them towards the root of the, of the resurrection, the empty grave? 
And Paul does this in a, I, I think it's ingenious, but it's not beyond our ability to understand. So again, I don't want to get bogged down in it today, but I want us to try and understand what's going on here because you might read it and not fully understand what Paul's doing. Um, I remembered this from a previous study years ago, so this is just something that has lodged in my mind. It wasn't covered in uh, the David Pryor book that I'm using for this. but um, So, sorry, verse 13, but if there's no resurrection of the dead, they're not even... So you notice that Paul's... He, he makes the, the, the point in verse 12 that some of them are saying that there's no resurrection of the dead. That's the question. How can you claim... How can some, How can that be? How can you say that? So then he goes into verse 13, but he doesn't go into verse 13 and immediately start going on about the, the appearances, the various different um, appearances of Jesus to, do you remember in the previous week's session, he appeared to Cephas, he appeared to 500 brothers, some, some of whom were still alive at the time. He appeared to James, he appeared last of all to... Paul himself was one untimely born. That's what we read last week. So he doesn't he doesn't start to repeat that, but he 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 rather he he kind of goes along with the the way of thinking of the people. Do you remember what Paul said in I think it was chapter nine somewhere, becoming all things to all people, to becoming like to a Jew becoming one like a Jew, or to a Gentile, and so on and so forth. So this is Paul flexing his ability to do that, and it's important because. It sets a tone, I think, for what it might be and what it might mean for us to be radical today. So keeping in verse 13 in mind, what were the Corinthians doing to argue against the resurrection? Well, they they operated from false presuppositions. So I'd kind of think of it as a, as a form or a type of circular reasoning or an argument that requires... Um, how to explain this is difficult, but that, that requires that the desired conclusion be true. Um, so in I'm, I've never studied classics and I've not studied this at university or anything, but in classical rhetoric and logic, rhetoric and, and logic, begging the question, you know, we have that colloquial phrase, um, something or someone begs, it begs the question that. Well, begging the question means... More than that, originally it kind of means assuming the conclusion, which results in an informal fallacy. Now I'll say I'll try and keep my head in gear to say something about inf- fallacy generally in a minute. But basically, when think of the Corinthians' argument against the um, resurrection is from a premise that assumes the truth of the conclusion instead of supporting it. When an argument's premise assumes the truth of the conclusion instead of supporting it. So I'll give you a a silly example. If in this statement, Manchester City Football Club is the best team in the Premier League because it is the best of all teams, that would be a sentence which would mimic, in a way, the way that these Corinthians uh, tended to think and that Paul wanted to uh, engage with so as to dismantle it. Coming up with a statement like that is obscene, isn't it? I mean, it's absurd to say Manchester City is the best football team in the Premier League because it is the best of all teams. It assumes, it, it presupposes um, that, that, the, that the end, the conclusion, is the basis of the argument. In other words, it's like a parent saying to a child who complains about why they have to do something. Parents says, because I say so. You know... It might sound like a silly example, but that's essentially what all of this boils down to. And so 
technical technical detail here. This is for your notes, so you can do a bit more work on it. In verse thirteen, Paul, when he when he asks that question, the pivotal question of verse twelve, he then engages with something called modus ponens or versus modus tollens, and these are these are propositional forms of propositional logic, and that's why I'm not going to get bogged down into it now, but. If you just look, let's just keep let's keep this simple. Look at the text, and I'll, and I'll try and explain at least my understanding of it. Verses thirteen through to nineteen, Paul assumes, in a sense, hypothetically, that the argument against the resurrection was true. So he he have the, so these propositions of, but if there is no resurrection. Um, then not then not even Christ has been raised. And we go to ver- verses 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And all of these different implications through these verses, which I won't go into for time today. But remember, if you just cast your eye into verse 20, um, tw- verse 20 is where the house of cards collapses because he sets up the argument based on the way that they think of it. and then And then he counters it by appealing not just to his own conclusion but appealing to testimony appealing to his own experience of the resurrection in Jesus himself and the the detail of last week's verses so the corinthians had this circular reasoning that uh, i think undermined their um position regarding the resurrection and that's why paul Prior is saying it's it's important to Paul to push the people to see the lo- for them to see the logic of their beliefs. There's much more to be said on that to help form an understanding of what these these forms of modus ponens and modus tollens are. Um, but if the reasons that you give for knowing that the resurrection didn't happen is because resurrections don't happen, you've begged the question by assuming as true what you are trying to prove. And that's what they were doing. They were assuming as true what they're trying to prove. And this is fallacy. Um, and th- just a quick, te- another final technical word on fallacies, informal fallacies. Um, it's important to understand this because this is the way, again, I think this is the way that the, la- the landscape is in our modern day equivalent to Corinth, is that the source of the error is not just due to the form of the argument so that the way um the way that these guys were arguing from their assumed conclusion but also the content and context fallacies despite being incorrect usually appear to be correct and thereby can seduce people i'm just quoting um a guy here to be correct and thereby can seduce people into accepting and using them these misleading appearances are often connected to various aspects of natural language, such as, such as ambiguous or vague expressions, or the assumption of implicit premises instead of making them explicit. So this this result of the Corinthian argument against the resurrection was fallacy. And in our world today, people view the gospel as laughable. They mock it. They think that the resurrection is is just fairy tales. And this is this is the way that fallacy works. Falsehood works is that it appears, it appears to be like that. It appear despite, but it doesn't change the reality. It doesn't, and this should be the the burning furnace of our radicalization is that even if everybody in the world laughs at you, it doesn't change what is real, what is true. You have to remember that the 
the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So that that's some technical um, aspects to this particular passage. And it is a standout passage. There are some other passages in in the New Testament where Paul does this kind of thing, but this is a real standout one, and particularly because it's the chapter on the resurrection. So I'd encourage you to Google modus ponens versus modus tollens and try and understand a bit more about these propositional forms of logic that Paul dismantles before then. And, and this is all foundational to the, to the rest of the crescendo of this chapter, and it will, in that sense it will make more sense as we get into that next week. But as, as a radicalized believer, so Paul was now a radicalized messianic believer, obviously, he's demolishing this logic, not only of the Corinthian Christians in the church, but also the wider, the wider con- cultural context that he was desperate to see converted as well. So it would be worth rereading some of these earlier passages in, in this letter, because if you remember the topsy-turvy nature of wisdom and folly in chapters one and two particularly, this is really what's going on here. I want to finish today by looking at Acts 17 for a couple of reasons. And one of them is that I think it's it's one of the best places as a parallel passage to have open um, to see Paul functioning as a radicalized disciple. This is in, if you look, if you just flick over to Acts 8, 17, this is the, um, this is what happens in Athens before Paul then goes on to to Corinth. So in put a note in your Bible if you don't already. Acts 17, you should see clearly there, is in Athens. And then he goes to Corinth in chapter 18. So as we study 1 Corinthians, Acts 18 is relevant. But it's Acts 17 I want us just to turn to. And I tell you what, I'm not going to read the whole of this passage again for time. But Acts 17 verses 16 to 34, um, I think, offers a, a fascinating window and keeping in mind what I was talking about earlier about being radical, redeeming radicalization, there was a phrase here as I read this this week that gripped me in in the context of our pushing people and that, that being an appropriate uh, posture with regards to the ways of this world. Um, sometimes what people need is, is, a, is a booklet put in front of them. Other times they need to be pushed. And I would argue strategically certain people need to be pushed in a certain way. Um, and ultimately we follow his leading on that. But if you, if you read, you might want to pause the podcast here and then read Acts 17 verses 16 to 34 and then come back. But I want to make some obvi- some observations here for our redeeming radicalization. Paul was in Athens and look at the, look at the phrase at the beginning of verse 16 there. Um, he was waiting in Athens and his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. I remember being in Oxford in England a few years ago and um, with a guy who I knew there, who I still know there, and, you know, Oxford just surrounded. Like What struck me is that there were just big human heads everywhere, you know, like statues of humans, heads everywhere. And I just remember at the time feeling similarly, and I didn't have this passage in mind, I just remember thinking it's just something quite sick about this. Just a place that's full of its own, the sense of its own importance, you know, human wisdom, human learning. One of the best universities in the world, world leading intellects and academics and so on, just big, big statue esque heads everywhere. And it's, it reminded me of that when I read this. His spirit, Paul's spirit, was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And if you're familiar with the passage, he then goes on to announce to them the unknown God. Um, 
because Paul knew them in verse um, second paragraph there in to to the unknown God. Um, for as I pass along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. Um, and thinking of Paul's dismantling of those forms of presuppositional logic that I've just touched on a minute ago, he does this here in, in quoting. He's in Athens, you know, surrounded by these the human wisdom. And, and again, keep in mind the earlier passages of, of 1 Corinthians, you know, that, that God's, wis, God's folly is greater than man's wisdom and, that, and all that type of stuff. Epimenides of Crete is a, what was a well-known figure um, who'd, who was known as coining the phrase, in him we live and move and have our being. Well, that's what Paul was quoting in this part. I'm just trying to save a bit of time here rather than going into each of these passages. But as you read it, you'll recognize what Paul did in 1 Corinthians 15 with regards to this argument against the resurrection. He did here as well when he was announcing to the Athenians a God who was for them just idols and bits of metal and stone, an unknown, un, uh, an idol. He was announcing to them through um, quoting Epimenides of Crete. And he did that again for for we are indeed his offspring, which was another quote. But Suffice this to say, I want us to look at at what some of the dynamics of this passage, because I want it to act as a as a kind of model, if you like, of what it might mean for us today in 2022 moving forward to be radicalized. Just a couple of standout points. What lessons can we learn from today, from this passage in Acts 17 to help us push to help push us and to push others towards the radical? Sometimes booklets through a door isn't enough. Maybe even arguably most of the time it's not enough. So just some things that struck me from these verses. Paul majored, firstly, Paul majored exclusively on the foundation truth of the cross. I covered that last week. I will continue to repeat that. I continue to be um, stirred and marked by that myself. His, His resolve to know nothing apart from Jesus Christ on the cross, of course, was hand in hand with the resurrection. It was synonymous um, so this foundation truth, think of the what we're trying to push people towards as the resurrection. It's the foundation truth of history. There is nothing more significant than the resurrection. Number two, Paul was literally prepared to give an answer to all opponents of the gospel. Again, chapter nine, becoming all things to all men. Paul was prepared, not just in the sense of willing, but he was prepared to give answers to um, to these Athenians. He was provoked in his spirit, that's important to remember, but he was also prepared to give an answer. And I want to just say something here on um, something that I'm going to do some content on in the next few weeks about something called text- textual criticism. Now, without getting into any more technical stuff today to bombard your minds with, suffice to say, when it comes to defending the reliability of the biblical manuscripts, there are people who who do this thing called textual criticism, which involves looking at manuscripts, and it's a scholarly discipline, it's a scholarly profession and work, and so on. But I'm going to do some a little bit of content on that in the next few weeks in terms of trying to understand the what is actually true and provable and demonstrable in terms of the reliability of man, biblical manuscripts, so that when we come to speak to people who would challenge the biblical manuscripts and that's a a, a common um 
it's a common problem that people have. It's a common hurdle to get over when it comes to the gospel because people just think that the Bible is is, is a kind of a, a text that's written by man, altered by man, Chinese whispers. Um, people have got no real understanding of the the historicity of the manuscripts and how that compares to other um, literature and and so on and so forth. And so, textual criticism is the is the method by which the biblical the actual biblical reliability can be demonstrated and demonstrable. And I think it's important for us to have that to be prepared for that as a as a major example in our day and age because of the recurring nature and particularly with Muslims, you know, people, Muslims want to say that, you know, that the Bible is dubious and spurious and so on and so forth. So, so firstly, Paul majored on the foundation truth of the cross. Secondly, he was prepared to give an answer to all opponents of the gospel. And that's one example that's going to come in the next few weeks for our cultures today. Um, just as an aside, in Athens, you know, thinking of this foundation truth of the cross, so single-minded was Paul with regard to the resurrection that the Athenians thought that that Paul was proclaiming two different gods. They thought he was um, proclaiming Jesus and Anastasis. You know, that's what well, Anastasia. Anastasis is the Greek word for resurrection, and, and so. They thought that he was because he was so focused on resurrect the resurrection, the resurrection, the resurrection, the resurrection. They thought he was proclaiming two different gods in that for their pantheon. You know, they were you know you, again trying to understand what was going on in in not only Corinth but in Athens as well. Um, you had the Epicureans who they tend they tended to be generally against the supernatural in their thinking. Generally, you had the Stoics who were naturalistic and uh, you know again, avoided certain kinds of emotions and certain kinds of trains of thought. And both the Epicureans and the Stoics tended to be pantheistic. In other words, there was this pantheon of different gods. Um, So when Paul was in Athens proclaiming in the way that he was, they thought he was just introducing Jesus and this other god, Anastasia, because, because of the focus on the resurrection, and that's a, I think that's a guide for us in terms of how single-minded we should be with with the, this reality, this stunning reality of the resurrection. Um, just just briefly in finishing, three Jews, devout persons, and marketplaces. So looking at Acts seventeen again, you'll notice at the beginning, around about verse sixteen and seventeen, um, he he was re- Paul was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews, and then it says and the devout persons. And in the marketplace every day. There's just so many lessons here. So Paul was prepared to engage with the Jews, other devout persons who might not have been Jewish. I've just touched on a few of them. And in the marketplace with with people from all walks of life. And not only was he engaging and reasoning and prepared to reason as a as a redeeming, radicalized, messianic believer, he was doing it every day and in the marketplace every day. So again, these are these are things and lessons that we can be thinking about in terms of our of our own redeeming radicalization. To Jews, devout persons in the marketplaces every day, with those, as it says in the scripture, with those who happen to be there. God is sovereignly pulling all the strings here, of course, as we follow the Spirit's leading. Fourthly, be willing to be manhandled. Look what be be willing to be manhandled. I don't mean to be abused or, well, abuse will happen, won't it? We know that, but I don't mean you should just stand there and let people beat you up. 
but being willing to be manhandled. Look what happens to Paul, um, around about verse 19. And they, and this is Acts 17, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. That, that, that thought of being taken. Now, of course, that could just mean they say, they, they, you know, very cordially and politely invited him to come along. I, I have the feeling from the from reading that that there was more of a an arrest, more of a kind of being forcibly taken to the Areopagus. So either way, the point is that there is a sense in which, as we reason with people, there will be a a response that will be a little bit like being brought into the lion's den. Um. I remember having a uh, there was an just a memory I have in my childhood being at school and there was this kid I can't even remember his name but he was this is like in I don't know 11 12 years of age or something and he I remember he was a bit of a bully and you know I wasn't being bullied by him but there was one one day on the on the football pitch on the on, during a lunchtime break or whatever and was playing football and he came up to me and he wanted to he was he wanted to drag me off to, to behind the uh, sports hall and I was kind of going along with it because I didn't know what he wanted whether he wanted to you know talk to me or whatever and it suddenly occurred to me that this kid might just try and beat me up and I'm just willingly being taken along behind the sports hall where no one else can see what's going on so I had to, I had to kind of like put him in his place and said no I'm not going with you mate. but the, that feeling of being taken um came back to me as I read this. And I think it's important to keep that in mind because as we as we are committing to being radicalised by in our pursuit of faithfully proclaiming the gospel, there will be those who want to take us into the lion's den. And of course, Paul didn't resist that. He went there. And this relates to the final point. He was willing to stand in the midst of them with both premeditated words, i.e. the words he'd prepared and also none. You know, I can't remember where the scripture is now, but where it talks about in the moment you will have words of the by the Holy Spirit to give you when you're brought before courts. And this is an example of that. Paul was brought before them and there was a sense in which he was prepared to a point to explain, but also there would have been the unprepared utterance of the Holy Spirit as a gift, you know, that came in that moment. That was a promise. You can find that verse for yourselves, I'm sure. So this... this um, this provocation of his spirit that this passage starts with, Paul was, was, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols, is a miracle. This, this is a miracle, the provocation of, of, of your spirit, of my spirit. This is a miracle of the spirit of God who literally indwells your body as a holy temple. And what we're going to see next week as um, we come to verse 20 is the house of cards that these people that didn't believe in the resurrection had built up. Lord, we thank you now for your word and we thank you that in our limited understanding we can still know the the simplicity of having our spirits provoked. And I pray that for everyone today that, that our spirits would be provoked to proclaim as radicals that you would, by your spirit, redeem radicalization so that we would proclaim faithfully with provoked spirits the truth, the only truth in that sense of your resurrection. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.